0: Dave here, just a couple of words before diving into the next episode. First, a moment to pause and reflect on the passing of our beloved friend and master clown Rob Torres, who headed to the Great Pitch in the Sky on Tuesday, June 26th, 2018. For those wanting to remember the International Man of Mirth, we invite you to listen to episode 16, his bio episode, or episode 40, in which he shared a couple of stories from his globetrotting adventures. Rob brought a very special magic to his audience whenever he performed and his presence in this world will be missed. Next, I wanted to thank both Lee Ross and Mike Wood who have reached out recently with ideas for episodes that they want to hear. Not only did they come up with the ideas, but they also offered to help make them a reality. Coming up with a great idea for an episode is where the process begins. Collecting audio, crafting edits, adding supporting images, and authoring that content into an episode takes time and care and the sort of dedication that we're hoping you'll also be able to contribute. So consider this your invitation to bring an idea and a certain willingness to help turn that idea into an episode, and together we'll make sure that the incredible diversity of our community is truly represented. All right, let's get to it.
1: When I first started in Covent Garden, you got the impression that it was a place where really artistic people who couldn't necessarily get a gig in a theatre or a cabaret or whatever had this thing inside them that they needed to do and they needed to go and perform it somewhere and Covent Garden was that outlet for those people. Really, really artistic people. Really artistically driven. Every decision they made on stage wasn't driven by making money or trying to do the biggest show ever. It was driven by their artistic vision of what they wanted to do exactly their character whatever they wanted to do some of those shows were completely out there there was some crazy stuff happening for examples well a, a really good example would be dr stew dr stew was uh, an example of somebody who didn't have this sort of tangible thing it was a personality and his personality just completely rode that show and drove that show he was larger than life he was hilarious he was an amazing mover he was really good looking. He was just this enigmatic ball of charisma that you just could not watch. And um, he was amazing. He was incredible. But there were, there were guys who were completely off their heads as well. There was a guy called Shakespeare who used to come and recite Shakespeare uh, and do this sort of mad sort of reenactments of Shakespeare um, scenes and things like this. Um, there was oh, Savas, this amazing guy who started off doing this sort of robot show and um he did this show. yeah, he started off as a robot, dressed up as a robot, and sort of just moved around and did stuff as a robot. Uh, but then he just went down these sort of weird avenues, and I don't know what he ended up uh, rowing in a boat with tennis rackets and getting audience members to do that. and uh, it was just crazy mad stuff. Clown, a lot of clown stuff, Mr Abraham uh, he, said it was, he was this massively tall, lanky guy that just just moved like amazingly and had this really amazing body that and I can't even remember what he did in the shows. He did stuff to music. He'd have music cues and it was sort of character-driven stuff. Um, Charlie. Charlie Chaplin. Uh, Charlie Second, Charlie Second was there doing amazing shows. Massive shows. Uh, Melvin Artois, who was Emil Flop, who was the guy, basically, who kind of trained and taught Pepe to do what he does. He was doing these just massive following shows. These incredible, great big following shows. Then you had groups like the Pioneers who were these um, African acrobats Used to come in like seven or eight strong, did massive great big things on the piazza, just completely filled the piazza up. Um, We had musicians, uh, Terry Sinclair, uh, a singer-songwriter, did all his own material on the street, which is quite unusual. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, really lovely, a guy called Kai Jensen, he used to do covers, but really very good. And then a guy called Carl, a saxophonist, who had this crazy dog that would just bark every time he played the sax and would sort of go, (laughs) like sing along with the tunes and stuff. Then you had, you know, Duncan Trillo doing magic. You had Roy Lee and Juliet doing magic there. You had Keith Fields. You had Steve Mills doing magic. Then you had The Black Box Show. You had Chris and Alex. You had Andre Vincent. You had John Feely. You had Dave Southern. Just all these amazing people that you look back on and go, wow. How lucky was I to rock up when all those people were there?
0: Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. Street performers tend to be mavericks, the sort of people who challenge the status quo and defy the rules and regulations that those in authority would have you adhere to. There's little doubt that Dave Evans was such a rebel, hell-bent on resisting the conformity of the English school system. It wasn't until he found juggling and subsequently street performing that his formidable drive found a constructive outlet. Street theater not only gave him a means of self-expression, but also a venue to see his efforts rewarded by the positive interaction he enjoyed with the audiences he performed for. Now, if you haven't listened to the short story in episode 88, where Dave recounts how an evening of hijinks ended up with him breaking his back, I'd invite you to go and listen to that one first, as it's a significant chapter in Dave's life that gets referenced in this full bio episode or just plow ahead and listen to this one first. Heck, you might be the sort of person who resists being told what to do too. However you decide to proceed, I invite you to sit back and enjoy this great conversation and some pretty amazing stories from the pitch.
2: So we are here in Dubai at the Dubai Marina Mall Street Performers Festival Thursday the 23rd of March 2017 and I'm sitting down with Dave Evans, a.k.a. The Great Dave, two cups of tea, and... Uh, Let's do it. Have a chance of conversation. Yeah, it kind of went a little bit uh, pear-shaped last night when we bought... Uh, well, there was a bottle of vodka and the Yeah. And Shay and... And uh, Bob at large, he was quite vocal. Yeah,
1: he was well-oiled, lubricated. Well-lubricated, yeah. Yeah. So
2: we're going to try it again. Yeah. 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 Um, We didn't really know each other that well before spending the time this week together, which has been great. Yeah. yeah. And I had always had the sort of impression that you'd come from a very posh, sort of rich background. Mm -hmm. And I think this was based purely on your title, The Great Dave. (laughs) And the. uh, This is how
1: they got away with it in (laughs) in the past. You just call yourself a title, call yourself an earl or a noble or something like that, and everyone just goes, (laughs) oh, yeah,
2: all right. (laughs) And then the, the sort of the very clean London English accent. you gave me this sort of impression of who you were, which is completely
1: false. Accents are such funny things. I, I, if you asked me what my accent was, I would say it was a weird, homogenized mixture between English, Australian. Uh, it's kind of this no man's land in the middle where the sort of accents merge and turn into new things. So I don't think of myself as being particularly English or posh at all. It's funny. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. So my background, my mum. actually, my mum actually was quite she was um her dad was a colonel in the army oh right yeah he was he was in world war ii he was out in um india and africa um he was like I st- when he died we went through all these photographs of him and there's these amazing black and white photographs of him standing in front of you know 10,000 troops all doing what he says uh he was an engineer he used to build uh bridges and roads and all the stuff that was bombed to hell and back Right. He'd go and rebuild it, and when they had to get you know tanks across rivers and stuff like that, he'd build these floating pontoon bridges. And he was the guy in charge of that, so he was pretty well to do. And I remember as a kid going and staying at his house, and he was just this giant, great big mansion up in the middle of nowhere. Like where you had to go through the driveway, and you still couldn't see the house. Something kind of oh, right, right, like right. huge, great big houses. And um, I never really thought anything of it because you don't really question these things as a kid. Right. Uh, and then yeah, when he died, we started going through all the stuff, and he was a hilarious man. He was a very austere, very serious, really. Sh- Tall, really tall Bald, had this wonderful Hitler moustache And um, he was a funny guy He used to write We found these letters That he'd written These were just precious letters He'd written to the BBC um, Complaining Because the newsreader on the BBC Didn't have his bottom Button undone On his waistcoat And that was incorrect uh, it should be undone should be undone the bottom button should always be undone so that it doesn't ruffle when you sit down ah. and he would write these letters to the BBC complaining that the newsreader's uh, bottom waist button was done up and, uh, and, he do that. and he'd got these replies back from the BBC saying <laughs> dear Mr Anderson we're so very sorry that you were offended by this he <laughs> <It> was hilarious <laughs> so that's my mother's side and then my father's side was totally the opposite they were um, pig farmers from um, the middle of England and uh, yeah, my dad's classic like, working class, made good kind of guy. He decided he wanted to be an architect uh, aged uh, 16, 17. Uh, I don't think his parents could afford to put him through architecture school, so he went off and got a job and basically funded himself doing that and took himself to architecture school. And, and he met my mum there who was studying art, I think, history of art. And uh, they met. and uh, Fell in love. Fell in love, and the rest is history. Well, you were born. I was born, along with my sister, who's 16... Months. 72. 72 for you? Yeah. So you've... What what are you now? I will be 45 this year. And
2: how long have you been in the game? Well, let's go back. Where where did you start? How did you start? What was the beginning?
1: Um, The beginning for me was uh, a very unhappy experience at school. I was just completely... I don't know how to describe it really. I just didn't fit. It wasn't the thing for me. I didn't work well with them. They didn't work well with me. We just butted heads constantly. I was um, I was quite young and opinionated, and I was a punk. I was you know had a mohican, and I really like two fingers to authority kind of thing. Constantly, didn't like being told what to do. Challenged everything. My constant question to everybody was why? Why should I do that? Why Why do you want me to do that? Explain yourself to me. And if they couldn't explain themselves to me, I had no respect for them. And yeah, age 14, I think I just walked out of school. I said, this is not working for me anymore. I'm leaving. Were you juggling by this point? Um, I had just learned how to juggle. Yeah, my brother-in-law had taught me how to juggle three balls. And yeah, I just I don't know what it was. It just totally gripped me with both hands. And if you talk to my mum about this, she said at the time they were super worried about me because I was just on this nihilistic nosedive into sort of like I'm going to leave I'm going to live on the streets you can't stop me I'm going to do whatever I bloody want to uh, I don't see well I should have to work for a living I'll do whatever you know I was really I was on a on a downward spiral and, and this is
2: like um, the early 80s so this is like post Punk
1: rock was... It was post-punk, yeah, yeah. I was a bit behind the times on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but
2: I mean, still, the attitude was there and the approach and the sort Absolutely, of, yeah, yeah, totally. To um, authority,
1: yeah. I think, to be fair, at the time, although I do still agree with a lot of the basic principles that I was sort of championing at the time, I think really it was just the image of um, anti-authority that really grabbed me. And, um, yeah, so I was on this downward spiral. It was really not looking great for me, I think. And then... Suddenly I discovered this juggling thing And I was just Whoa This is amazing And it just And my mum describes it as like Suddenly I had this thing in my life That just filled me with positivity As opposed to negativity Which is what I'd had before What do you think it was
2: About juggling that
1: appealed? Uh, maybe it was something That I could do That gained the respect Of other people That I could teach myself I didn't have to ask For permission to do it I could just And I could do it And I was quite good at it You know I was quite dexterous I was quite uh, agile and um, And I learned quickly, and a lot of people were kind of like, "Wow, that's really good, that's really impressive. I think maybe it was just that. it was um,
2: did you enjoy the praise you were getting from?
1: Yeah, I think so. yeah, I think from
2: a skill that you'd actually made an effort to learn, yeah, and then getting positive feedback from it immediately, exactly yeah, exactly. which is kind of how street performer works to you.
1: It is, and you know, in latter years when I've taught sort of uh, circus skills to, to people um, the time where it's been the most rewarding for me is when I've met children who have otherwise failed or dropped out of the sort of sporting where I live now it's very sporting everyone does soccer and rugby and uh, Australian football and, and okay. all this sort of stuff and it's the kids that have like been sort of dropped aside out of those systems that have really come to circus and really just gone wow this is awesome and it's that same thing i think that um up until then they've been deemed as failures because they weren't good at sport and now here's suddenly this thing that you don't have to be good at sport at to really excel at and um that's been the most rewarding for me when i've met children like that and i think i was a little bit like that i was never one of those really athletic kids that really got into sports and did and it wasn't academically i mean it's not that i'm stupid it's just that i just didn't want to I didn't want to learn I didn't want to have a bar of it these people were up there telling me what to do and how dare they have the <laughs> audacity to think that they're better than me and I, yeah, I just really butted against it so. So
2: how did it go from juggling to performing I mean was the performance component of it
1: yeah so um, again I credit my parents um, for this they saw this sort of positivity in me and thought this is good we should nurture this this is nice I think my mum was slightly more on board than my dad my dad again I say he was a classic working man made good working person made good and he the best years of his life was spent at university oh, right. and the thought that I wasn't going to do that really made him quite sad whereas my mum I later found out had been very similar to me she'd been thrown out of schools and all kinds of things which I had been as well and um, she saw this and went this is good we should run with this and um, so they had a friend uh, an American friend of theirs uh, an amazing woman called Sandra pollman, and she was a clown and um strange relationship her her husband was he was in the army he was an American guy they were both American Uh, he was in the army they lived in England for some reason but he was based out in Germany he used to go out to Germany a lot and she was a clown and um, very religious people as well Uh, and she used to do this the Holy Fools they were called um, which were an English kind of clown group that did stuff for God Okay, and I I mean I'm I've never been a religious person. Um, I respect people's right to it, but I've never been. But I ended up doing a couple of shows with her. She basically took me under her wing and said, "Come on, we'll go and do a show together." So she had some
2: experience, and then she was able to expose you to.
1: She did, and she she knew exactly what was going on. You know, at the time I didn't really get what was going on, but she knew what was happening, and she basically said, "We need to help you to." push you in this direction towards doing this thing that I know you're going to be good at which was performing and um so was
2: your mom. she was aware oh totally friend. my
1: mom and Sandra were totally in cahoots they had it all mapped out and planned for me so I went off and we put together this show and I was I was so proud of it and myself and what I could do and you know we were just doing shows we did a couple of very interesting shows we did yeah I was juggling juggling and, and unicycling and balancing I got really into balancing stuff um, on your face or- yeah off my chin or on a mouth stick or stuff like that and um we went and we did stuff in churches, which was a weird experience for me. I'm serious. Like I was full on Mohican ripped trousers, you know, Sex Pistols t-shirts. Like I was, I was the, exactly the opposite person that you'd expect to walk into a church and do a show with a clown. But it worked really nicely. And uh, we did a show in Wandsworth Prison, which is like a high security prison, basically doing shows for murderers and rapists. And that was pretty intense as well. I do think that was part of the master plan. Again, As well. my mom was basically going, he should probably see this just to steer him away from that world a little bit. Right. Uh, like, don't end up in jail kind of thing. Um, and then we ended up at Covent Garden um, where they used to have a clown convention. They'd have a clown convention there annually each year. 1988, um, I think 80s. it was. Could even have been 87, actually. No, it was 88. It was 88. And um, we did our show at the clown convention. What month? Approximately? April. April. Okay, so spring, spring of year Yeah, yeah. They used to every year. There used to be a clown convention there. Uh, doesn't happen anymore. Hasn't happened for years now. Um, but yeah, we did our show there as part of the the clown um, thing. And uh, and then I just saw this world that this this new world that opened up to me, which was the world of street theatre. And I saw. Um, I was trying uh, to remember this last night. I definitely saw the Black Box show. I definitely saw Paddy and John doing the Black Box show, which was an awesome uh, piece of clown slash street theatre no skill involved no sort of tangible skills Um Paddy used to stick his head they'd like have a big tea chest box and Paddy would get inside the box and just his head would poke out the top and like he was a funny looking guy as well he looked really funny with just his head poking out of the box this sort of geeky kind of John Tweezy kind of uh, thing about him and John Chappell um, who was his show partner at the time uh, would get a kid out of the audience and they'd basically just beat him over the head with a baby <laughs> bat and then and then they'd put a cloth over his head and they'd drive a head spike um, they'd have a head spike as you do which a kid would <laughs> hammer into his head it was just hilarious and the kids would get right into it oh they'd love it absolutely love it yeah totally love it and you know I think I'm pretty sure they <laughs> I just I remember the smell of the black box because the black box they stored all their props inside the box uh, which they used to bring in in a trolley but the way they'd hammer a spike into Paddy's head was they as the cloth would go over, they'd substitute his head for a cabbage but being street performers they never really bought a new cabbage until the old one had just literally fallen apart and rotted in their hands (laughs) so the inside of the black box used to stink of rotten cabbage (laughs) as did all of their clothes and all of their props so whenever uh, Paddy and John were around you'd smell rotten cabbage but I think I'm pretty sure that was the first show that I saw and it just it just blew my mind, absolutely um, it just exploded. Just, I suddenly just went, oh, you could do this? <gasps> That's amazing. And I rushed home, put together a show, phoned up Alternative Arts, who were the organisation who was running it. They were an arts body, um, funded arts body, government funded. and They were running um, the pitch in Covent Garden and got myself an audition and went down on a rainy Tuesday in April and did an audition in the rain, to two Japanese tourists, made myself the princely sum of 40 pence, and uh, but I got my audition, I got my license,
2: oh, and that really? meant
1: I could go and work there um, whenever, and whenever I wanted. What was the show? Do you remember? Very vaguely. I put together this little story, juggling with three beanbags, and I put together this story about going on an adventure, and like the different tricks with different parts of the adventure, going over the mountains, through airplanes, and all sort of stuff, um, I'm pretty sure I rode a unicycle in it. I'm pretty sure I juggled fire I think I ate fire at the end as well and I think I did some sort of weird balancing thing in the middle with these my, I've got these t- sort of tubes and balls and stuff balanced on top and this created this big thing and then just put it all up on my chin and oh, balanced it on my chin and very I much the, the punk image thing. still like yeah oh totally absolutely do yeah. you have any photos from this period yeah I do yeah, yeah. I've got a photograph of me there's one actually that somebody sent me um, okay, I don't know who took it actually of um, me I haven't got, it's not spiked up, but it's, yeah, it's me with my me sitting behind the pitch. I had a mohawk for like 10 years while I was a street performer, I, mean, I kept it, like, I used to just tie it back in a ponytail, but, right.
2: yeah. Not the gorgeous flowing locks that you currently... It's, it's a miracle
1: I have hair at all, considering <laughs> what I did to my head, <laughs> the, the rubbish that I put in my hair to try and get it to spike up and stuff, yeah, it's a miracle.
2: Did that show, that first show with the juggling, the balancing, and the storyline, did it quickly progress Yeah, to totally. something completely
1: different? Yeah, I mean, I was really heavily influenced by the people around me. There's no doubt about that. Who were, um, who were the people around you? Uh, certainly the people that influenced me were um, uh, Chris and Alex, uh, Mr. Adams and Mr. Dandridge doing their duo um, juggling show. It was just an amazing show. Still is. Actually, somebody posted um, footage of them doing the Paul Daniels show the other day on Facebook and I watched that show again and it was just so like, good. oh my God, you are two hugely talented people and Alex doing his pratfall down the stairs at the, oh, entra- at the entrance it's just, that, it's just absolutely incredible brilliant performer still is amazing performer Alex Dandridge, really high a lot of respect for Alex Um, so he was there John Feely was there working solo doing a solo show which was right. a big influence vis-a-vis clowning and sort of physicality and what you can do without doing great skill because right. I was really into my skills actually I really I really, you know, I used to go and travel for like four or five hours a day. That's all I did, really. I'd go to and go Covent and get my show, practice, do my show, practice some more, go home, practice, go to bed. That's all I did. And, so you um, got good quickly then? Yeah, well, as I say, I was quite good at it. I was quite, you know, I learned quickly and, um, yeah, I was quite motivated uh, to do it.
2: And you hadn't been with anything else before this? No, nothing at all. No. And did the shows also feed that need for praise and that? acceptance in
1: that I think so yeah I think so I'm not a great believer in you know star signs or whatever but I'm a Leo <laughs> I uh, I think I do need the uh, praise and attention yeah or just rather the um, what's the word acknowledgement I need to yeah I need, yeah, I need that from people definitely I do right. yeah, and we all do in varying degrees I think but I think I need it maybe more than most
2: Right. Um, and this gave you an outlet, ticket at very pictures. much so.
1: Yeah, very much so. And as a kid as well, you know, as a 15-year-old kid, 16-year-old kid, my again my folks said, well, you can leave school if you like, but, you know, you're going to have to pay rent, you're going to have to buy your own food, you're going to have we're not subsidizing this lifestyle that you're choosing. Right. Go to school, we'll look after you, but if you're not going to do that, you pay it for yourself. So did you still stay
2: at home but you were paying rent then? I did.
1: Yeah, yeah. From 15 I lived at home but I had to pay him rent and I had to buy my own food, I had to put in for the food, the weekly sort of shopping and stuff. And uh, yeah, that was uh, again it was an incentive it was like yeah sure you can not go to school and sit around the house doing nothing or you need to go out and earn money is what you need to do so I did that and that was that was good and I did so I worked up going for about a year got my show to a point maybe slightly less than a year actually got my show to a point that I was pretty happy with it and then I went to um, a circus school in Bristol uh, there's a circus school full there full time uh, it was called full time at the time it's now called oh god what's it called now? I can't remember what it's called now
2: I went there after San the '87 general convention in San france Did you? Yeah, I met a whole crew from Covent Garden, yeah, right. and it was this beautiful moment of the. It was in the fall, and there were chestnuts on the ground. Yep. And all the English boys picked up playing conquerors, playing conquers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and getting your knuckles smashed. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a really great thing, and so then I ended up in London, and then I went over to, to Bristol as well. So full yeah, time nice. it seemed like a great facility.
1: It was. It was awesome. Yeah, we, I was there. I did the first ever one year course that they did and um, I think my folks had to persuade them that I'd be okay because I was technically too young to do it I Mm -hmm. still wasn't I hadn't even turned 16 I don't think at the time and um, yeah I did that I was there for a year I never ended up completing it in the end and I ended up leaving because did you
2: go because you wanted to advance your skills exactly
1: that Yeah, I was just like here we go awesome I'm going to learn all these wonderful circus skills and then they started to try and teach me things like uh, performance and clowning and like we dance. had to do freaking yoga and dance and all this sort of <laughs> stuff and I was like what? so I stuck I did about three quarters of the year I think and then I just went okay look this isn't for me this isn't I'm not learning what I want to learn here
2: Did you learn some things there that you've then applied, or was it just like I think this is the right thing you got there it wasn't the right thing
1: uh, Pretty much yeah I think I met some really interesting people actually to be fair and I kind of I lived in a community of like-minded people which was really nice so Like I lived and worked with other people training as well like nobody in Covent Garden nobody was sort of practicing with me I was doing it all on my own right. whereas here I could go and train with other people and that was fun we came up with some nice sort of stuff like doing stuff ensemble pieces and things like that which I hadn't done before I learned the basics of sort of Commedia dell'arte and how to use physicality and performance and things like that which at the time really didn't seem that important to me but now I look back on it definitely important having said that I was too stubborn to learn it at the time, right. and I had since relearned it. And then went, oh, that's what they were talking about back then. <laughs> I should have just listened back then. <laughs> I wouldn't have had to relearn all that stuff. Right. Uh, so I did. Uh, yeah, I did. I uh, definitely learned some stuff, and I had access to things like slack ropes, tight ropes, uh, trapeze, uh, acrobatics, uh, trampolines, mats, you know, all that sort of stuff, which I yeah, hadn't. And had a drive to. to learn it all. And a drive to learn it all. Yeah, I did learn quite a bit of stuff actually. I did. Um, I did a lot of slack rope and tripe, uh, tight rope stuff, which I hadn't done before, which I, again, I found it really easy. I just, as a 16-year-old, you know, you pretty much take the most things sure. if yeah. you apply yourself. And I was good at applying myself towards that stuff. So, yeah, after three quarters of a year, I went, okay, I'm... Um, Were you doing more. shows at this time as well, or just training? I No, I was going and doing shows on the weekends in Bristol and Bath, because um, I needed to make money to... Was
2: North Britain in Bath at the time, doing the walk? Or was that after...
1: No, Noel was... I don't think he was doing his walks then. He was still doing shows. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Skate Naked were there. Um, Pete and Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, ooh, I can't think of who else was there. Good question. But there with weren't the, many people there actually doing it.
2: With regards to being quite young... Yep. ...on the pitch while well, being... Come garden or in Bristol... Mm. ...dealing with performers who are older than you... Mm. ...did you ever run into any issues of, you know acceptance or non acceptance for these
1: guys I didn't tell anyone how old I was for quite a long time because I didn't think I was allowed to do I didn't when I got my license for Garden Garden I was 15 years old and I'm pretty sure you had to be 18 to do it um, so I didn't tell anyone how old I was for quite a while um, no uh, it was a pretty interesting sort of setup really a lot of people talk about those times when a bit about feeling like they were a bit bullied by people on the pitch and so on I'm not sure it was bullying per se it was more. I don't think people expected me to stay there for any length of time. I think they thought I would just come and try it and then leave and go somewhere else. And um, once I'd been there for a little while, people were kind of like, all right, right, we'll we'll talk to you then. (laughs) Um, It was more just they didn't expect me to stay there. And also, there was, you know, in most circles, there are groups of people who know each other really well. I watch it happen all the time. And you have to make an effort to include somebody in a conversation who's not part of that group. And, you know, that didn't happen all the time. So it's not bullying, it's just people. being being with friends exactly yeah and you could say they're being lazy because they don't invite other people into the group or you could just say they're just yakking on and just getting on with it which is more what it felt like but they're very I mean these were people that I looked up to as well and I was a little bit kind of intimidated by them in that respect um, which also made it I I wasn't particularly forthcoming I didn't sort of go up to them and and start conversations because I was a little bit in awe of some of them and um, as a 16 year old kid absolutely you do kind of go (laughs) I'm scared of talking to you so
2: After full time in Bristol, did you go back to. I went
1: back to London, yeah. I went back to Covent Garden and worked there for. uh, till about 13 years ago. I was there full time, like working all the time there. I went, um, that's not strictly true actually. I lived up in Yorkshire for a little while and worked around there, worked in Leeds, worked in Durham, uh, worked in Manchester. uh, Straight up street shows? Just street shows, yeah. Just rocking up on my own. Only person on the pitch. Uh, doing finding chores. a pitch creating spaces yep yep
0: yep,
2: yep. yep. it was good actually It's really good it was really good um, were you always going back to the kind garden sort of like a home base and then
1: no I was living at the time I was um, living with it was in a relationship with somebody who was studying at Huddersfield University which is sort of pretty much the dead centre of Britain mm-hmm. and um, so I was living with her and we. Were, I was working around there while she was studying at uni she was from South Shields which is just uh, near Newcastle okay. northeast um, so when when we finished there we went and moved up there for about a year as well and I worked in Newcastle I worked in South Shields and Durham um, yeah so not yeah not all the time in Covent Garden that was, a, that was a couple of years of my life I think um, somewhere in the middle where I didn't work in Covent Garden but yeah most of the time working in Covent Garden so you got was, to see it change a lot I imagine over the time mm, that you were there yeah it did change a lot yeah. so
2: when you first went there there was a council that was sort of looking after the arts yeah so the way
1: it works there it's a mixture of private land and council land and church land there are three different organisations the licence is basically the same as an entertainment licence that a bar or a pub would apply for to have music in their venue Okay. so whoever takes on the licence is the licensee, and they are ultimately responsible for the upkeep of the rules of the licence so somebody had to do that this arts body put their hand up and said yeah we'll do that so they ran the Day-to-day booking of the pitch. Um, and what was this? Was it a show-up first-come, first-serve system? Or? Uh, it was, yeah, it was. It was first there. There was an arrivals list which started from midnight of the sort of night before. Mm-hmm. And you could put your name on the arrivals list anytime from midnight through till 10 in the morning. Once you had your name on the arrivals list, you had to stay in the Covent Garden area. You couldn't put your name on the arrivals list, go home, come back at ten. And then at ten, whoever was first on the arrivals list would get first choice. Right, and the the day would be split up into. Then it was half hour shows, just half hour slots, and um, that's start the
2: show, finish the show, and off the pitch.
1: On and off, all yeah, all your stuff set up, show done, and clear and off within half. So twenty minute show, really twenty twenty five. Never worked. Yeah, no one ever did. By the end of by the end of the day, it would be two hours over. Like.
0: Minimum. And it was
1: the constant source of debate is how do we stop this overrunning problem that we have until somebody finally went, maybe we should make the time slots. stop. <laughs> so they didn't combat the problem altogether, but it helped definitely. So they turned from 30 uh, minute shows into 40 uh, minute shows. Oh, 40? Yeah, we only added 10 minutes. And, and that was a bitter fight to get to that point as well uh, it did not make a difference yet it meant well I mean the, the real problem was you'd book yourself a six o'clock show and then you'd go away and do something else and you'd come back and your six o'clock show wouldn't be until eight o'clock so if you had something else to do if you had another show somewhere else because there were two pitches which were both booked in different ways so it was the outside pitch in front of the church there yeah. and then you had the inside one the inside one was a weekly draw you were allowed four shows a week which you booked the week prior to that so you'd book yourself a three o'clock show on a Saturday afternoon you book yourself a twelve o'clock show outside. And then it would overrun to the point where your 12 o'clock show would clash with your 3 o'clock show and yeah, things like yeah. that. So you, yeah, you'd have to choose. So it, it, was, it was a problem. It was annoying. It was really annoying. And also, you know, the 8 o'clock show would get bumped to 10 o'clock by which point it was dark and Covent Garden was empty so you'd lose your show. Right. So yeah, it was always a problem. And changing it to 40 minutes meant that at least, like technically we lost a show or two shows because of the added time but it meant that you, if you booked the 6 o'clock show your show would be closer to 6 o'clock. Right, well, it wouldn't be eight it would be seven <laughs> yeah. we never quite resolved the issue I think they were, uh, the last thing I heard they were considering sort of punitive measures for people who consistently overran uh-huh. yeah I don't know it's one of those problems that you just kind of go well some shows are 20 minutes some shows are an hour and what do you do about that right. you need a line up system it's, you, know, you can't over regulation of street theatre creates its own issues you know it's like when you try and manage it like that on that sort of scale it creates its own problems and, but um, you got
2: involved with the managing
1: and stuff I did very much so yeah And there has always been a street performers association um, which was set up so when Alternative Arts left there was a street performance when is this approximately uh, I would say it was probably around eighty-nine, ninety, something okay. like that Alternative Arts, they lost their funding and they pulled out of uh, doing the Common Garden licensing. At that point, the management, who the people who owned the market, who were an insurance company, they said, we'll look after the license. We'll take over the running of the license. And we kind of went, you know, alarm bells kind of going, okay. Mm-hmm. So you're basically you're an insurance company who employ people to come in and run the market. Who are sort of market managers who were then going to get the security... And they basically said, we'll, we'll get our security guards to run the, run the pitch for you. And we all kind of went, well, that's not going to be good. No. So there was a kind of a bitter fight, really, to try and get the running of the pitch, to try and take over the running of the license by the SPA, the Street Performers Association. And Were you instrumental in forming? No, I was not, no. I, I had only really started to get interested in, that, in the sort of mechanics of running those sort of things. At that time it was uh, I, oh, it i maybe it could be it could have been around the time that i went off to circus school actually uh that this happened that i kind of i got interested in, in the start of it and then i wasn't there anymore and i'm pretty sure maybe that's when i went off to bristol anyway i don't think they ended they, well they didn't end up getting the, the had to run the pitch the management took over and sure enough it was terrible you know you've got security guards coming down making judgment calls on street performance it was never going to be good and a lot of people were quite soured by the process of setting up this SPA. setting. it was an official organization, you know, and the running of it. We had to vote in chairman and people had to take minutes and all this sort of stuff. And then, of course, this body then, people knew about it. So then people started to, I th- I'm pretty sure this is what happened. People started to sort of phone up and go, well, we want to book a street performance. So we went to the SPA and then... And then somebody got the gig over somebody else, and they were like, Who's deciding this? And guess what? And it just turned into this horrible, sour mess where people just started to hate each other. So I think it was kind of everyone just stepped away from it. Like, we don't want anything to do with this SBA <laughs> thing anymore. So the, the relationship between us and the market was always a little bit weird. you know, their, their prime concern is real estate and getting as much rent as they can sure. for their units. And um, there was a very interesting. Thing that happened, I think, about 90 94 maybe something like that. Um, 93, 94, where the market came up with this grand plan of what they were gonna do. They were gonna charge street performers to work there. They were gonna, yeah, there was all this sort of stuff, and they were gonna introduce gaps in between every show to encourage visitor circulation. Because that as far as they were concerned, everyone was coming to watch street performers and they weren't shopping in the shops. Sure. So how do you solve that problem? You cut down on the street performers. You, if you charge them, less will turn up and then you make these gaps in between shows. You're basically getting
2: rent right from street performers.
1: Getting rent right from street performers, but their main reason for doing it was to try and sort of cull the amount of performers that were there, cull the amount of shows and encourage visitors to sort of go around the shops instead. Do things so? At no point did they go maybe the shops aren't any good or <laughs> well, maybe you know maybe people actually do want to see street shows they don't want to see the shops right. but yeah so the other problem that they have is all their units are quite small so they can't charge a huge amount of rent for it so what they wanted to do is try and turn Covent Garden into this kind of like uh, Bond Street Pall Mall kind of they wanted to really raise the profile of it and turn it into this exclusive area and we didn't really fit into that plan very much so we had this massive fight with them and um, this Street Performers Association was reformed and people were sort of re-enthused uh, and ignited about this issue and yeah it was myself and a guy called Adrian and I can't remember who else it was I think it could have been um, Andre Vincent actually I think Andre was quite sort of uh, active in it and a guy called Windsor uh, Street Performer as well so we kind of yeah, we, we, we took it to them and went, if you do this, you're going to have a massive publicity campaign that's going to um, hit you. Gareth Jones as well, he he was doing it as well. And somehow one of the local news stations got hold of this story and said, yeah, we want to run with this. And then it just went boof from there. And Mark Rylance, the director of The Globe, he said, we'll have you. If they don't want you, we'll have you over here. So we did this wonderful like news story six o'clock news like across the whole of London with us in the Globe Theatre doing street shows and Mark Rylance there going this is awesome this is perfect if they don't want them we'll have them like they don't know what they're talking about they're idiots oh wow just couldn't have asked for better publicity and yeah, um, what happened they went and interviewed the market manager as well there's a guy called Peter Scott I'm still friends with that she's an interesting guy um and they just totally fitted them up. They totally stitched them up. And the next day, we got a call going, OK, 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 stop, 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 stop. We, we want you guys to, to, to forget about it. It's fine. And um, so, yeah, all these proposals got dropped, and it was sort of claimed a, a victory for us. And um, it was great. It was really good. And, and it created this community as well. And, and it also... Reinstilled faith in the sort of negotiation process up until then I think everyone had just thought well, there's no point in talking to those people they don't know what they're talking about now. they're never going to listen to us anyway what's the point and it sort of yeah it was good it was a really strong moment for us in common garden we kind of got things that we wanted we went in there and said actually no we want it to do it this way and they went oh okay then just don't do that TV thing that you did last time just, it was really, really bad yeah it made them look terrible and I'm quite sure they got a phone from the CEO of the insurance company going what the hell is going on why is this happening you know how have you let this happen kind of thing mm-hmm. so it was good it was good yeah I mean it's,
2: it's all beautifully part of the history that you went through but we're not talking about you specifically and I'd like to get back to that if we could yeah yeah you went from... I mean, you travelled around, you were doing a show. How long did it really feel like it took between when you started it coming to when you felt like, okay, this show is solid, and I'm travelling with it, and I'm working it? Yeah, right. A couple of
1: years, probably. Yeah, two years, maybe. And
2: then, when did you start doing
1: team shows, working with other people? Um, much later, or...? I... No, I think um, there was a guy who worked there, a guy called Rob Ballard, who used to be Eddie Izzard's uh, show partner on the street. They used to do a show together. And when Eddie made it big, um, Rob started doing his own thing, and he created a theatre company called the Performance Theatre Company. And he had a relationship with the Croydon Warehouse, which was like a new writer's theatre on the outskirts of south-east London. And um, he would put a show on there once a year, um, and he'd do various different things. Paddy did shows with him... um, Pete Mielnicek uh, did shows there, uh, Charlotte Palmer, Gareth Jones, um, lots of Dominic Rentians, lots of people worked with him. Uh, and he'd do these shows. and Using
2: street performers as cast members. Using street
1: performers as cast members, yes. And that was his sort of USP, really. That was the thing that took these shows and turned them into something amazingly powerful, was the, the, the energy and the, the presence that people had on stage. And, and obviously no fourth wall, you know, it was uh, lots of gagging, lots of talking to the audience, lots of improvising, lots of fighting around a two hour show that started a two hour show at the beginning of the four week run would end up being like a three hour show by the end of it yeah it was great it was really really good at the time it was quite hard to do because you really didn't earn much money from it it was profit share basically you get at the end of your eight weeks you do four weeks rehearsal four weeks run and at the end of your eight weeks you'd be lucky if you walked away with a grant it was pretty tight but then we could do shows when we weren't you know we could go to Covent Garden and do a show in the morning and then go and do your theatre show in the afternoon kind of thing so oh, we, we sort of subsidised ourselves for and bit, this yeah. is mid 90s at this <laughs> point uh, yeah yeah uh, mid mid to late 90s um, and we did I did several shows with him I did the first one I did was Three Men in a Boat uh, Jerome K. Jerome's classic sort of English tale of three men going up the River Thames in a rowboat a double sculling skiff uh, and then uh, what else did we do we did I tell you what we did do, which was fantastic. We did a version of Three Musketeers on the piazza. Oh, he, wow. he staged it on the piazza, yeah, uh, over the summer. It was a massive, great, big uh, scaffold kind of set built around the church with these sort of rampways and platforms and stuff like that. And the cast of ten street performers doing Alexander Dumas's uh, Three Musketeers, Musketeers and yeah. it was it was amazing. And we had it at the end. That's how we oh, paid. Wow! Yeah yeah it was huge it was really good it was an amazing experience it really opened my eyes to what you could do just with the power of doing shows with other people and at the time I was I think I was quite complacent about being in these shows in some ways because it was quite hard work you didn't earn much money and whatever but deep down I loved it absolutely loved it and um, I totally credit Rob for doing those and and he took a bit of flack as well because putting that on the West Piazza in the summer so from I think five o'clock onwards every summer day throughout August the pitch was not available because wow. of this production and it was it was a big deal you know um, but it was it was pretty special was well pretty attended sp- very well attended yeah absolutely like every show was completely choco. you couldn't get any more people we did you know at the time this was so this was when did Diana died do you remember when Princess Diana uh, died
2: 97
1: the, the, okay this was 97 because the last night we finished August the 31st was the night that she got killed um and we were doing I think we did two and a half grand like pounds in a hat one night it was like it was huge it was big it is. <laughs> and, yeah, and it was a two hour show you know it was you, it wow. was it was big yeah it was big yeah I had microphone was in it uh, Herbie Treehead was in it I was in it a uh, guy called Humph James Matt Bernard uh, was in it um, Adrian Davies Jordan he was in it uh I don't know, a couple of other people
2: but, but, but I think you do these shows but you were also doing your sort show
1: uh, yeah we do street shows during the day we started the run doing street shows during the day and by the end of it it was just exhausting you're doing a two hour show every night you're absolutely exhausted by the end of it and it was no microphones no nothing it was projecting for two hours solidly you know it was big it was a big deal and a lot of running around sword fights up and down gangways and wall plan- and all wow. sort of stuff oh, it was pretty special it was pretty special I've got some photos I'll show you some photos it was amazing it was an amazing thing And that very definitely was, that was just, it was so exciting to be involved in that. And it was also so exciting to see how the medium of the street could be used for something other than going out and doing a juggling show, you know. This was a totally theatrical experience. No sort of, other than sword fighting, no skill really in the show whatsoever. Huge comedy routines, moments of pathos, you know, really quiet, focused, quiet moments of romance and stuff it was very interesting to see how that could be done on the street and how it totally worked it well, totally worked
2: and that it was on the very same pitch that was being used for doing yep. your classic
1: juggling show exactly, exactly. Yeah. both things were happening side by side yeah totally yeah, that's um, amazing the only thing that stopped it from working sometimes I think was on Saturday nights which was the, the Punch and Judy uh, pub that overlooks the balcony just the noise from there just the, the background noise of people chatting the music on the, in the inside of the pub that got a bit loud and a bit hard to deal with on Saturday night but Other than that, it was a dream. It was one of those things where I didn't want it to end. And when it finished, I sort of walked around in a bit of a daze for a week or so, just kind of going, what do I do now? Where where (laughs) do I go from here? This was such an amazing thing. And that very inspired me to work with other people, definitely. And um, again, I credit Rob Ballard for that, because at the time, I think I gave him a bit of flack for it, but he didn't deserve it at all. He was very, very... And you know, we talked about it at the time. With me going, how can you expect us to do these shows for this pittance that you're paying us? And he's like, "Well, because it's more than what you're doing. Like, what? Well, yeah, you can just go out and do shows. You can do that wherever you want, whenever you want. This has substance. This is more than just what you're doing. Right. It's, it's worth doing this for less pay, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, Which at the time I just thought, "Shut up! I can't pay my rent. What are you talking about?
2: No, but I mean, you know, there's a, there's a, a some. You have to feed your spirit and your soul and your art."
1: Totally. Well, that's what, he took it back to it being about the art and not about anything else, and that's what street theater should be, definitely. Ideally, but ideally, I yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah you've, got got living, you know, you've got to earn a living, you
1: know. You got to you got to do the odd um, corporate gig to pay the rent, kind of thing. Which is interesting because we
2: met a couple of years before that in Halifax, yeah. in '95. Uh-huh. And what I remember about meeting you in Halifax was that everyone in Halifax was riding around on six foot unicycles, Yep. Yeah. and you had an eight foot, yeah, cycle right. car And I was like,
1: whoa. Oh, that's a really tall unicycle. <laughs> uh, yes. and at the time, eight feet was considered, like, that's massive. But who, uh, there was somebody there with a 10 foot unicycle, I can't remember his name, Rick Lewis? Rick Lewis, yeah, was there was a 12 foot. A 12 foot, there we go. Really? So, I mean, I did the same thing, I looked at him and went, whoa, that's huge. That is, yeah. uh, The reason I had an 8 foot unicycle was because, just before I left to go to Halifax, my 7 foot unicycle, which I bought, within the first six months of learning how to juggle, basically just fell apart on me, just collapsed and I, I had to do an emergency kind of call round all my friends Go, because at the time the only place you could buy a unicycle in the UK was from Dave Mariner and what's the shop called was it? DM unicycles okay. Okay. and he was a guy who made them on his own in his workshop down in the south of England somewhere and he wouldn't sell a unicycle until he'd ridden it himself and you know he was just a master craftsman but the waiting list to get his unicycles was like six months minimum. And, right. um, and even then, if you kind of phoned him up and went, where's my unicycle? He'd get the shits with you and he wouldn't sell it to you. <laughs> he was a funny guy. But he made the best unicycles, well, pretty much the only available unicycles in the UK at the time. Right. So I put a call into him and I kind of knew him a little bit. So I kind of said, you know, how quickly could you do it for me? He said, well, for you, I could probably get you one in about four months. And I was like, okay, I need one next week. So anyway, I lucked out. Uh, a friend of a friend had bought a 5.8 convertible, those ones yeah, that I had, born, yeah. and bless him, he'd fallen off and he'd broken his ankle, and he'd said, I'm never doing that again. So he had this brand new unicycle to sell, so I bought it off. him. Right. So, but that's the only reason why, I, Other uh, uh, prior to that, I'd been riding a 7-foot unicycle. The only reason I had a 7-foot was I'd gone into, you ever meet Max Old Ball? The oddball shop. The oddball shop, yeah. yeah. I'd gone into, well, it wasn't even a shop. It was He was still working out of a garage out the back of his house at the time. I'd gone to his house, and said, I want to buy a giraffe unicycle, and I wanted a six-foot unicycle. Have you got any six-foot unicycles? It's like, I haven't got any six-foot, but I've got this seven-foot that no one once. You want to buy that instead? So I bought that instead. And it was really like, I didn't choose, I didn't make a choice to go... I must ride an eight foot now. It it was just like, this is what I ended up doing.
2: It became sort of that, uh, I mean, everyone talks about pole shows today, but Mm. the unicycles were very much the tall object that you got on in the 90s. Yep. Like even 80s, 80s, 90s. Yeah, 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 totally. And then uh, a few people figured out that you didn't actually need to learn how to ride a unicycle. You just need to climb up a pole and you get the same
1: effect. Yep.
2: (laughs) The beginning (laughs) of the end. We were working way too hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) I must admit, the first pole show I saw, I really, I was like, wow, I don't believe what I'm watching. Here. people are actually impressed by somebody standing on a pole I just didn't get it I was just like wow but really is this going to work really and yeah it's huge
2: it is huge and it's do you do you resist that or do you acknowledge it I mean that's the question I have yeah
1: I don't know I mean it depends it's personal it's totally personal I mean like for me I
2: yeah I don't know but then you've got people who do Chinese pole which is a, certainly a skill based yep. thing
1: which is but that, I think that's the defining thing, isn't it? It's a skill-based thing. It's, right. um, and you stand, still love your skills. Standing on a pole, that's not really a skill. I, I, entertaining you an audience. It's nerve. Yeah, but that's a different skill. It's, um, all you're doing is entertaining an audience higher. Yeah. You've just found a way of getting higher, which is, you know, there's some merits to that, but you can't help going, the only reason you're really doing that is to make more money. Sure. Um, it's a money-based decision that's been made. Um, and you could argue that the same applies to a unicycle, I suppose. But at least for that, you have to learn a skill to do it. You're presenting a skill. You're not just going, I'm going to get up high for no reason whatsoever other than to reach more people.
2: <laughs> Did you end up running into the... I mean, I, I had this all the time during the 90s that, oh, you're a juggler on a unicycle. We've got lots of those already. Yeah, totally. totally. Yeah. Even though you were trying to present something that was unique and
1: your own and yep. everything else. Yep, 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 yep. Definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, there was a real lull of sort of like people going, we don't want that, we've had that, we want something different than original now, fair enough.
2: Did that push you in a direction to do something different?
1: It did. Um, yeah, the cup and saucer routine that I'd learned initially right at the very beginning of my career, I'd learned to kick a saucer, a cup and a spoon up onto my head. I'd initially wanted to do it on the unicycle, but then I realized that I rocked with the wrong foot on the unicycle and I just didn't really fancy learning to kick with my left foot or learning to ride the unicycle with my left foot. And I think in a little tantrum huff, I just went, I'm never doing that again. That's a stupid thing. So I picked that up again. It was actually Pepe, actually. Pepe took me to one side one day and went, you know what, you know, you're doing this juggling, this unicycle thing. You used to do that cup and saucer thing. That was really good. You should do that again. And um, it really made me kind of go, oh, you know what, you're right. Sometimes it takes somebody from a different perspective to to point something glaringly obvious to you out. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did. So I, yeah, I did. I started doing that again. And um, you ended up, eventually being able to do it on the unicycle though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I still kind of can. Um, I just haven't done it for the last year because of other things. surgeries and so on. Like, I, yeah, I had to have surgery and my, my stomach muscles couldn't do any of those sort of things for a while. So haven't done it for a while, but I do intend to do it again.
2: Where did... I mean, something I really loved and I talked about it this with some other... Actually, Gareth Jones from, yeah. from Covent Garden was saying that we're all part of this tradition uh-huh. and that this cups and saucers routine... I mean, you must have seen it somewhere or you must have found it somewhere because yep. it's, it, it's beautiful that you took this piece that existed in the history of writing entertainment and made it your own.
1: Yeah, I saw it in a book. I bought this book. Um, pretty much when I bought my first set of juggling clubs, my first small unicycle from, again, from Max Olbo from his garage at the back, he had this beautiful big book called, I think it's called, it's either called The Art of Juggling or Juggling the Art and its Artists. It's a beautiful, big sort of hardback book. And in it are a collection of pictures of Rudy Horn doing his signature trick, which was um, I think it was nine saucers, nine cups, and a spoon onto his head while riding a unicycle it's huge it's massive
2: now you use comedy as your basis for it, not the technical skills
1: so yeah, much. yeah, yeah I wasn't trying to sell the skill really, it was just yeah, it was just a silly it was like a sort of quirky kind of trick sure. that I, that I'd learned um, and then I did, yeah, I, I was actually, I just, I think I decided that I was going to learn it on the unicycle. I thought, right, okay, I've got to do this. I've got to start. So I learned to rock on my left foot um, instead of my right foot. And that was when I had gone to Australia. I'd met Tamara. I was, so let's go. You were working
2: kind of Garden and then what took you to Australia? Yeah,
1: I met Tamara. I met, um, at the time, Shirley Sunflower. She was Shirley Sunflower. She was touring. Um, I'd actually seen her in Glastonbury a f- few years before that doing a show, but i would never really plucked up the courage to speak to her. And then I met her again when she was she was touring um, uh, Europe, basically. She had a, quite a big uh, network of festivals in Europe that she was doing, and she came over to the UK. She was in a relationship with a very good friend of mine, Richard Garrity, at the time. And we met and sort of talked and chatted and got on very well. And then the following year, she came back again. Uh, her relationship with Richard was sort of breaking up. And uh, I was a shoulder to cry on and we got to know each other very well. And then we, she was going back to Australia and I decided that I would, I'd never been to Australia and that this was the perfect opportunity for me. I had a friend who I could travel with who could show me the ropes and so on. And so we went via sort of New York and Vegas and had a holiday on the way out there. And then we uh, hit Sydney. This would have been 2005, I think, 2004, 2005. I think I got there at the end of 2004, November time. And was working there. And yes, I decided that, right, okay, I'm going to learn this trick on the unicycle. I've got... Uh, in Australia. In Australia, yeah. yeah. I, um, and so you I, said
2: you moved permanently. In no, no,
1: no. I was just touring. I was just going to do three months and then go home. I had my return ticket book going home via South America, I think, or something like that. Was, um, and yeah, we were only working sort of three, four days a week up in Sydney. And the rest of the time, we were down in a place called Kaima, which is now my home. And, yeah, I just thought, right, I'm going to learn this trip. I'm just going to devote my time to it. And I was was doing all right, really. And then um, I had an accident and broke my back. Now, were you a couple at this point? Had you become a couple? Kind of. Sort of You are <laughs> spending all this time together You are living together We were essentially living together Yeah We were sort of We were trying to work out How that was all going to work Because she was still very upset About the breakup Of her relationship With, with Richard. Richard And you know To be totally fair It was probably the worst thing to do it Would have been To run into a relationship with me So we sort of Kept our distance for a little while But it was quite obvious That we wanted to be In a relationship together But we didn't want it to be Soured by uh, Her previous relationship So we sort of Took you, your time Very much so Yeah very much so So this is just over 10 years ago that this happened. This was 2005, yeah. So we're
2: 12 years later, what's happening in the interim?
1: Well, um, I got married to Tamara. We've been married 12 years now. Uh, We've got two amazing children. And um, we moved to Australia together about 10, nine years ago maybe permanently. We had a house out there before and we had a house in London and we used to sort of split our time. Uh, We did nine months in Europe and three months in Australia and now we've sort of flipped that on head and we do 9 to 10 to 11 months in Australia now and one month in Europe this year we're only going over for 4 weeks I think we own a company called Laughter House Entertainment now which I suppose our thing is we have venues that we little mini circus tents uh, sort of that we call them mini Spiegel tents little mini Spiegel tents that we mm-hmm. take around they seat 100 to 150 uh, we take them around to various different festivals and events doing shows programming shows doing shows in them ourselves and then working with teams of other performers to do shows and
2: that, that started, started about eight years.
1: that started four years four years ago four I'd say yeah, four, maybe five years ago um, we now have six venues in Australia and we have one in the UK and um, we produce a lot of things now we work with hand in hand with festivals and we produce sort of large parts of festival programming and so on We direct stuff occasionally. We do a lot of stuff locally. We we produce a festival uh, where we live in Kiama called the Kiss Arts Festival, which happens at the end of April each year. Doing that for six years now. We try and create as much new stuff as we possibly can, actually. We both have been doing street theatre for a long time, and um, neither of us enjoy that moment that you get to with shows where you start to just
2: run through the motions
1: and not think about them yeah. we work a lot together now as well we have a show called Kiki and Pascal which we do together which is lots and lots of fun and we've got a load of sort of different variations of that we put on cabarets we put on um, we MC with those characters quite a lot as well
2: now do you think what you're doing now was informed a little bit by the experience you had in Covent Garden doing the uh, Three Musketeers show like seeing what was possible yeah yeah definitely definitely. for it. and, and you talked about working with Matt Ricardo yeah. and doing the variety theatres in Germany and yep. so
1: When was that? When did that happen? So that was um, just after I'd come back to England, after I broke my back. um, Matt um, Matt and I started in Common Garden within about a week of each other. Right. Um, I think I, I went there first, and there was a juggling... Sunday workshop that used to happen in Colombo Street in Waterloo every Sunday afternoon. There was like a juggling get-together and I started going there and I went to Common Garden and did a show and I came back the following Sunday and went, man, you should go there, it's awesome, come and do shows, it's brilliant. So he then went a week afterwards and we both started sort of within a week of each other. We did a lot of stuff together when we initially began. Uh, We worked with, more balls than most had a company office kind of in London at the time and it was next to a pub and they started doing cabarets upstairs in this pub. And we kind of became the MCs for that cabaret. They then bought the building next door and turned it into this huge rubbish space And we put on a couple of events there. And then really weird relationship uh, with them in the end that didn't quite work out. So we walked away from that. But we would used to do loads of stuff together. We'd often do shows together in Covent Garden. We'd have to go off and do, like when Covent Garden was full on a Saturday, we'd go off to somewhere else and work on the same pitch together somewhere else and things like that. And then, when I was recovering from my back, he said to me, Look, when you want to do shows again, when you're up for it, let's do something together. We'll sort of ease you in gently and um, take it easy. So, we did a show, we sat down, and actually, for the first time, sat down and wrote a show together. Because up until then, we'd just sort of done little bits of our own shows or whatever. We sat down, we wrote a show together, and um, it was quite good. (laughs) It, It did really well. It's called Married Men, and we ended up touring that show for a good 10 years doing lots of stuff in Europe, to lots of sort of European outdoor festivals. We then played the Kleiner's Fest in Hanover, which is this lovely three-week festival. We went back again and again to do that and then the Variety Theatre in Hanover saw us there and they wanted us to do a show with them and Shirley Sunflare would do their double billing. Married Ben, doing 20 minutes in English, followed by Shirley Sunflare doing 20 minutes in English mm-hmm. on the same bill. And um, it was pretty... Pretty full on. It did work, actually. Yeah, it did work It was very different. Everyone in Variety thought, "Ah, oh, this will never work. You can't do that." And and it, it did work. We did that in Hanover for two months, and then we went to Essen and we did it in Essen. That was very good. We did it in Munster. That was very good. Bad Oienhausen which is kind of like an old spa town in Germany. I think the average age of the audience there was probably mid seventies. And not quite as good no no not quite as good didn't speak such good English but anyway German audiences I find are brilliant because they speak such good English that they are really totally attentive you get more focus out of a German audience than you get out of any other audience when you're working in English because they Mm. listen to every word they really want to get every joke they really they follow you like a hawk they're really they're great audiences so yeah we did this show together for a long time took us all over did it everywhere you
2: talked about because we're in uh, Dubai Yep. You were talking about another group that you were with, the Racketeers. Yeah. Working. When, what period is this? Uh,
1: that was before I broke my back. That was I a been, mean, yeah, 2003, 2002, 2003 maybe. Um, yeah, Sean Gandini, who'd been in Covent Garden when I first started. We sort of started doing around the same sort of time,
2: sure.
1: uh, doing shows there. Always got very well, like big juggling, you know, did a lot of juggling together. Uh, very different styles. He's uh, very sort of contemporary, modern dance. Sort of um, does a lot of um, very technical stuff, and I was always more into the performance, the clowning, and the comedy side of it. Um, anyway, uh, we worked with a guy called Roger Robinson, who runs an agency at a circus space called Acrobats Unlimited, I think it's called, and he'd come up with this concept to do a tennis racket juggling show at tennis events. Sure. It's a great idea. Um, so, yeah, we put together this six-person thing, and I was kind of like the clown character in it, I suppose. At the time, I had long, long sort of hair. I looked quite grungy. I was quite fat, and I was quite kind of... I looked like a sort of, yeah, a grungy clown. So I played this sort of rock. It was all done to sort of... I think it was Blink-192 music. It was pretty high energy. Yeah, very high energy. And essentially, tennis racket juggling in different formations. Solo stuff, big passing routines with six people all passing. Wow. Lots of tennis. Like, there was... I think we did an... I did a seven-racket pass between six people. So there was, what would that be? Seven, four, so 21 rackets in the air. Like, it was quite a big thing. And rackets are big when you juggle them. You can't do little throws. They have to be quite big sort of looping throws. And that was loads of fun. We did that for... Yeah, we brought that out to Dubai. We brought it to Abu Dhabi. We took it to Bahrain, I think. We took it to Lebanon. We did a, filmed a TV show in Lebanon. That was fun. We wow. took it all over the place, actually. It was really good. Unfortunately, the tennis world is a bit kind of a bit of a kind of closed shop kind of thing we couldn't get well I mean, obviously the ultimate goal is to we'll get to it. Wimbledon.
0: yeah
1: couldn't we wouldn't have it wouldn't have us anywhere near it just the courts there are because it's grass it, it's such a volatile surface anybody who doesn't have to be on that court is not allowed on that court so us six idiots running around dropping tennis rackets all over the court and whatever like we used to jump over the net and stuff like that their nets are measured down to the millie, millimetre And then as soon as it's touched, they have to remeasure them again. So, yeah, they they wouldn't let us run anywhere near it. We did the Davis Cup and things like that. It was was pretty big. It's a good routine. It's fun. And did that just sort of
2: draw to a natural conclusion?
1: It drew to a natural conclusion, yeah. We found out that most of the gigs that we were getting were kind of at sporting festivals in the Middle East. And uh, again, as well, it's a six-person routine. So six air flights, six hotel rooms, six wages, six per diem. It was quite a big kind of deal to book us, I suppose. And the show lasted how many minutes? Twelve minutes. Yeah. so it's a lot of money
2: to spend for a 12 minute act
1: it is I mean we do it more than once obviously but um, yeah. Yeah, we came out here we had, we had quite a few odd experiences in the Middle East with that we, did a, we came to Dubai to do a festival here and they they said oh yeah we're going to put you in the parade so they put us all in this coach and we drove to the beginning of the parade and we sat there for about two and a half hours and then we turned around and we came back to the hotel and we got off the coach and we were like did we do the parade <laughs> was, was the coach in the parade what, what happened there then?" and they decided that the, the shake was in the stands And we were all wearing shorts. I was like, couldn't have you do that, sorry.
2: So, after this whole period in England or in touring Europe with uh, two married men,
0: you ended up
2: in Australia. Ah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, we had our daughter, and we we really just looked at our life and went, well, um, quality of life, why are we trying to live in London? Like, a lot of our work was not in England, was in Europe, or was in Australia why are we basically we don't need to base ourselves in London it's a really expensive city to live in Yeah, it's really overpopulated and it's really just a hard place to live you know we 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 had bought a house there um, an apartment there and we'd sort of stretched ourselves to buy the most that we could buy and we lived like absolute paupers to afford to do that for about two years and then eventually we just thought this is ridiculous we'll move to Australia we'll do the same but in reverse we'll, we'll base ourselves there and we rented out our place in London and um yeah much easier lifestyle um for us much more relaxed didn't have to work quite so hard just to get by you know and that made it easier for your kids as well I imagine too yeah, yeah. it also meant our children weren't growing up in sort of grubby smelly overpopulated London there's a lot to be said for London don't get me wrong I love London I love the cosmopolitan nature of it I love how there's you know, a thousand things to do every night in London um, I love the multiculturalism of London, I love the beauty the architecture of London but when you compare it to living in New South Wales in just space, green, living near the beach, living near a mountain with a rainforest on it you know, kids, like part of their school curriculum, their sports curriculum is surfing during the day, you know, it's, it's just a totally different way of life
2: Did that space also give you the opportunity to create space artistically for new projects?
1: Well, interestingly enough, we sort of decided that we'd base ourselves in Australia, but we'd still have to tour a lot. And the more we lived in Australia, the more we thought, you know what, actually, we don't really want to go away quite so much. We want to live here a bit more. And that pushed us definitely into creating work for ourselves. Like, you couldn't just rely on there being a festival circuit that you'd get booked for that would keep you going. There just wasn't enough work. For that, um, there was a, there is a the, uh, circus based about forty-five minutes north from where we live called Circus Monoxide, mm-hmm. uh, which used to be precarious, which was an offshoot of a group of people that went to Bathurst University, which is where Tamara studied her theatre media um, degree. I think Mike Finch, the director of Circus Oz, the ex-director of Circus Oz, he was pretty much in. He started um, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. They were looking for an artistic director. Tamara got the job. She worked with them for a couple of years as the artistic director for them. That led us into a whole new community of a lot of circus, a lot of physical theatre, that kind of thing. Um, And, yeah, it just sort of opened our eyes to the fact that if we really wanted to do good work where we live, we need to kind of be instrumental in creating that work. So we started a festival. We started to, yeah, approach councils and go, how about it? How about we do this thing? How about we get some tents up now and do some shows and...
2: And that led to the. I mean, you'd seen these little tiny tents at the Adelaide Fringe
1: Festival. Well, the first I saw was uh, Tony Brooke and the Tiny Top. Uh, he was the first guy I saw doing it, and um, that that would have been how many years ago? That was a long time ago. I think I saw it in Edinburgh. In when is me, that would have been the early nineties, probably. Uh, in one of the gardens in Edinburgh, he had his tiny top there. He was doing shows in there. It's hard graft, hard work, but it, but a lovely thing. A really. Instead of overriding the thing, I took away from it. It was just you sort of walked away with this warm glow. It was a really nice little sort of cute, carny kind of thing in the corner of this massive festival. This massive festival, yeah. He's the first person I saw doing it, and then yeah, Nigel and Louise in Adelaide had their first tent called the Costello which is this little didn't even have a roof actually had didn't have a canvas roof, just had beams to hold it up. Um, He built it with a Dutch guy, and and they'd started doing it together, and then he took on running it himself. And I did shows in there one year and just, I'd always had a thing for tents. Like when, with Circus Monoxide, I'd been really quite, I'd been really keen to get there. Because they've got a big top, like a proper big top, like a 550 seater, big, you know, footprints, like 60 square meters kind of thing. It's big tent. And um, I had really loved putting that up and down and tinkering with that and doing stuff, doing shows in there. And so I just had this thing about tents and when I what, what, after doing shows in the Castella I was really like okay this is I need to do something about this this is
2: this is going hand in hand with all the other stuff that's percolating in your mind about wanting to create work for yourself absolutely in Australia and be able to stay in
1: totally uh, yep here was a way of doing it and also a passion for building stuff as well my father's an architect and I'd always had a thing about like when he extended our house in London when I was a kid I'd always you know I was in there cutting up wood and helping him out and stuff I really I like building things I like doing I've done all the the renovations on our house in Australia. And here was another way of doing it so I could build my own tent. So yeah, we did, we, we built, um, La Petite Grande, which is a, a canvas. It's a nine meter diameter canvas tent with a wooden facade and, um, a seating system that seats about 110 people. And that was the that first one. That was the first one we built. Yeah. And, and immediate and, success. Pretty much actually. Yeah. Pretty well, um, we, I think the first gig we did with it was the Mullen Bimby circus festival. Um, Alice and Rich, uh, who run Spaghetti Circus up in Mullum Bimby. Uh, we were good friends with them. We'd had a partnership with the Monoxide tent, which the Spaghetti Circus and Monoxide were sharing this tent. And um, they said, Well, why don't you bring it up to Mullum and do it up there? And we did it It's first there. The facade was all wrong. We, as soon as we put it up, we stepped back and looked at it and went, mm, that's, That doesn't look right. So we repainted it for the following gig. But yeah, from the first shows we did, the first people who ever did a show in that tent were. Frodo Joel Salem Sue Broadway uh, Do punked uh like there's a real cast of a celebrity cast I, I feel very honoured that that was the first ever gig in that tent and it was huge I think we got the most people we've ever got in that tent at that festival well. verse, I think it was 160 people we had, yeah. somebody uh, counted them as they came out and just said it was just ridiculous it, was just, <laughs> it just kept coming but to be fair you know there were people, there were people sitting on the stage it was that packed um but yeah pretty much a success from there really and um what i wanted to create as well was um a space that was the same every time for us to do our show so we could build into our show Gags. stuff you know gag yeah entrances exits uh, tables chairs you know props and it was the just the way the seats are sort of tiered and they all point down to this one focal point on the stage, the energy in that tent is electric. It's incredible. It really is. I couldn't have designed it better if I'd really tried, which I didn't. <laughs> I had no idea about what I was actually building when I built it. And um, as soon as we did shows it? we just went, oh, this is good. This is good. And it is like taking street theatre and putting it inside. And that energy that you have as a street performer, when you put it inside a room, it's pretty intense. Um, you kind of have to be careful with it, actually. It can be too much. <laughs> it's intense. Intense. Very good. Thank you. very good um, so first hand Yeah.
2: then you've just kept going
1: with them yeah we have uh, we have six now in Australia and we have one in the UK as well um, yeah yeah we just kept going with them different ones we're, we're, what we we really like the sort of concepts of them and like coming up with this so the La is a is very much a little theatre it's a small theatre it's very theatrical it gets rented at the Adelaide Fringe each year as a theatrical venue it has you know Proscenium, stage, lights, sound, seating. It looks like and it is a theatrical space. Um, We have another tent which is very similar to that, which is kind of uh, Russian-themed. It's called the Alcazar. It's this big gaudy pink gold thing with mirrors and pictures and all this sort of stuff and like minaret towers all over it and stuff like that. Um, We have another one which is a a venue. It's called Café de Rue. And it's a café. Um, it's got a stage and seats and tables and chairs, but it's got a, a café in the corner. It's a French-themed sort of restaurant slash venue. Um, we just did one for the Falls Festival up in Byron Bay, which is a mini kind of peep show called the a That It was an absolute scream. Well, we, we'd performed at the Falls Festival. We'd sort of created this area where we took a load of our tents up there and did sort of created a zone, like an area. And we'd always joke that the attention span of the kids up there, because it's an 18 plus festival, so it attracts us, basically attracts 18 to sort of 28 year olds. Everybody older than that kind of goes, I don't want to hang out with those people, or they've got kids which they can't take there. Yeah. So it's very much that demographic, and they're all off their heads, so and they've all got the attention span of about three minutes. And like every time you'd be spruiking a show outside the tent, somebody would come up to you and go, has it got tits in it? <laughs> has it got tits in it? I'm <laughs> I gonna see tits. So we decided to create a comedy peep show that lasted for three minutes with tits in it basically and, nice um, yeah it's just one side of the thing you go in, and it's got a live show on the other side just had like a comedy kind of porn movie that we made <laughs> and it was a scream. it was a total hit total oh, hit, fantastic massive hit yeah they loved it and then we've got a sort of circus drop only kind of thing that we do and then we've got the one in the UK which is called the Casador which is basically a mini speaker thing it's wooden it's got a wooden floor it's got glass windows around it and um very beautiful tent we built that for the assembly gardens in Edinburgh um,
2: so it's, it's like the evolution of your performance career is really yeah you've taken everything you've taken the stuff from the street you've taken everything that you learned from working ensembles yep. the stuff you've had from variety in yeah. Germany so, yeah. and the festival circuit yep. touring yeah. and you've sort of combined them into this perfect little
1: yep and then managed to satisfy my building career lust as well so. and I think if I'm truly honest probably um, trying to prove myself to my father uh, the architect that I actually i, I can do this I can do, like yeah it was a little bit of uh, sort of
2: please your father,
1: pleasing my father, probably, yeah, yeah, if I was to lie on a couch and talk about it, that's probably where we'd go with that one,
2: yeah, well, it's interesting that the performance was in essence pleasing your mother, yeah, because she had been an artist as well, yep, and that then. Come full circle. Yes, yeah. and I had—I
1: think I had always felt that my father was not disapproving, but just slightly disappointed that I hadn't gone off and got a degree and hadn't gone off and had this sort of legit, <coughs> um, <coughs> conventional, the- <laughs> conventional career. You know, yeah. um, uh, not that he's in any way disapproving or disappointed in what I've managed to do and achieve and where I've gone, but I think deep down he was probably a bit disappointed I didn't go to university and didn't do those kinds of things. So I think I was. I, I certainly know that whenever my dad has come and visited me in my house in Australia, I'm like, okay, I must finish off that thing that I never quite finished with that renovation. there, like, tidy it up and make it look good. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think if I'm truly honest, I'm probably uh, trying to please my father through building tents. Um, he helped me build, actually. He helped me design the the or the wooden tent in the UK. He drew up the plans for me um, uh, and stuff because we had to get it all signed off by engineers and so on. So...
2: so- roughly 30 years from when you first started were yep 29 I think yeah Yeah, 29 yep three decades in three decades in what's changed well I mean from when you started to now I mean you've maintained your connection to the street Mm. as well as
1: doing other things yep but you've seen changes Uh, yeah it's definitely changed in 30 years yeah very much so I remember a moment where people started to talk about doing their bottling speech before the finale and people were kind of like you can't do that you can't do that breaks up the flow of the show why would you do that well because then they all listen to you before you uh, give them the final you, trick give them the final trick or the final piece or whatever but a lot of people really kicked against that going you can't do that it would ruin the show absolutely ruin the show ruin the autistic drive of the show so that's a sort of that gives you an idea about how much people and these big shows as well lots of them had bottlers where the bottler would get 25% of the hat uh, somebody going around collecting somebody going around with a hat collecting for him. yeah and that really rarely happens now There was a career you were a bottler you know there was three or four bottlers that would work every day in Covent Garden bottling people's shows and they'd get 25% and that was the deal and and um, the acts did better as a result some of them did definitely yeah yeah certainly like, musicians and stuff like that but it was you know it was how you asked for money as well like, you were a good bottler you'd get the work and right. if you weren't you wouldn't the amount you earn in a hat hasn't necessarily risen with inflation put it that way you were doing there were some big shows happening people were doing like 150, 200 pound shows at that time in the late 80s, early 90s that was a lot of money and um, I think people kind of just started to go wow you can make a lot of money out of this and how do I make more money out of this and um, I suppose people with lesser talents would work out that it, if you did things in a certain way you could still earn the same money as somebody who had a big talent And I think the focus shifted from performance to making money. And for me, one of the last times I worked in Covent Garden, this wasn't the reason why it was the last time, but it sticks in my mind as being one of the last things that happened to me in Covent Garden was a performer had watched my show and he came up to me and he said, you know, you're not making anywhere near as much money as you should be. Read this book. That's about how to ask for money. And he handed me a book about how the psychology of sort of getting money out of people and I gave him the book back and I said, you know what, my reason for doing the show isn't to make as much money as I possibly can, it's to do like a good show. And it was a bit of an alien concept to him and I kind of walked away from that going, wow, okay, I wonder if that's what has changed street theatre. I wonder if it's become this thing now where the focus is no longer the performance, it's the focus is whether you, how much money the you cash. can make out of it. How successful you can be as well, I think. Production values have risen as well. Like um, everybody mm-hmm. uses mics, amplifiers, music cues. Um. Nobody really wants to play anymore. We used to, like, people do group shows constantly. People just muck around and go, I've got this idea uh, to do this thing. Do you want to come and do it with me? And people would do sort of impro group shows together all the time. And that rarely happens now. People don't do that very often anymore. And Yeah, it's just turned into this sort of very, very polished kind of thing that makes money, I think. And I think that's probably the thing that's really turned it, is people realise that you could actually make a bit of money out of it and it's sort of changed the character of it and it changed the... The expectation from... Uh, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: From both the audience's perspective and the performer's perspective?
1: Maybe. Maybe. I, I've heard from a lot of people who say, oh, you, you've you got to use a microphone now because if you don't use a microphone, everyone's going to look at you and go, oh, why aren't you using a microphone? Aren't you good enough? And I don't know if that's true. I, I mean it'd be easy to convince yourself of that I think but I right. don't know if it's actually true I don't think you do I think you can do just as well without it I mean I use a microphone because I'm old <laughs> doing a 45 minute show projecting for 45 minutes is absolutely exhausting so um, yeah, I'm just out of practice I'm not match fit anymore so yeah. but it's interesting and it's it's easy to fall into the trap as well I think as, uh, on the pitch of sort of feeling like you're not doing as well as you could be doing and people sort of subconsciously sort of fall into that trap of going all right i need to make more i need to do this better than i'm doing it kind of thing
2: well hopefully we all continue to pursue something better than what we're doing yeah
1: it's pretty important yeah it's pretty important because i think it does i don't know if i don't know if you can see an end in that i don't know if it has a conclusion but it certainly changed the nature of street theater from what it used to be to what it is now and um maybe i'm just a bit uh sort of um Got sort of romantically looking back to what it was like when I first started there, maybe I mean everything changes, everything evolves, everything turns into something else. So maybe that's just the way it is.
2: And you're no longer the person you were. Well, exactly. And I no
1: longer have a passion for it either. I'm no longer that person who was in there fighting for my right to do it and whatever. I'm, I'm much more like I step back now and I look at organisation of pitches and I sort of go, yeah, maybe it's not such a good thing after all. Maybe we should all evolve and we should all move around. And you know, I think one thing is. Um, established pitches like I was very guilty of this I worked in Covent Garden permanently for 15 years it was my 9 to 5 job you know I'd rock up every day of the week and do shows and yeah. it was there it was you know it was like an ATM really it was just a way of making some money low pressure could live my own sort of lifestyle I didn't have to worry about that kind of thing and i think that the more you start to work a pitch the more complacent you get about it and the less creative you are you have more and more expectations of what that pitch should deliver to you and um in some ways establishing these pitches and making them like work fighting for people's rights for the work and stuff maybe the best thing for covent garden would be for it to just die and go away and for another pitch somewhere else to start because everyone had to go and work somewhere else a lot of sacrifices are made when you start to negotiate with management as well and it's not this anarchic thing that it should be it should be edgy it should be different it should push boundaries okay so
2: let's bring this to a a close talking about anarchy talking about what it should be yep do you have a story about a beautiful moment of anarchy that you saw on the street or that you were a part of on the street that sort of articulates to the point you're making about what street theatre can and should
1: be um, I think the best example of street theatre that I've ever seen was John and Alex the Uncles working in Edinburgh. They went up there one year. They didn't want to work on the Royal Mile, And they worked in a thing called the Wireworks, which was like a space, like a square kind of behind the Royal Mile, just off the Royal. You had to go down a little alleyway. And there was this big space. It was kind of like a natural amphitheatre, but it was off the beaten track. You wouldn't have gone there unless you knew it was there. They decided they were going to work there for the month and just do a show there each day at the same time for the month. And it started with, you know, 20 people, and gradually it grew, and the word got around. And it was in a... So there was a... a, Courtyard. It was a courtyard, exactly, yeah, with with sort of seating uh, where you could sit there. But then behind it was all these um, residential properties, uh, apartments. And they started this thing with this woman who would be in the window each day, and this woman would come, the old woman, like the 85, 90-year-old, and she'd sit there in the window and watch them each day. And they just got more and more. I mean, John and Alex, when they started... Improvising, they. So John and Alice, John Feely, Alex Dandrovich, yeah. the uncles. The uncles, yeah. yeah. They were great at what they did. They were absolutely great, especially at improvising. And they just started to, every day it would become more and more things, and they'd reference this woman up there, and they'd they sort of imbue of this character, and she'd be there, and she watched every single show every day for a month. And then on the last day, they did their last show, and I kid you not, like, we knew it was going to be their last show, so we turned up a little bit early. We were there like 45 minutes before the show started, you couldn't get a freaking seat, it was packed everyone the word had got around it was the show to watch in Edinburgh that year and um, the show started with John and Alex wheeling this woman in in a wheelchair she, they'd managed to somehow communicate with her or whatever, and they got her down and got her in a wheelchair and they pried a place in the front of the thing and they did this show I and mean, it was like a two and a half hour show so it was huge it was massive it was, and it was just it was beautiful it was like one of those moments where all the variables that can make or break a street show all just went clink, 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 clink. Everything dropped into place. It was a beautiful day. It was... It was they'd got, they got. were on form. This woman in the front row and they ended the show they bought this massive bouquet of flowers and they gave her this massive bouquet of flowers. And for me, that just completely... It changed... It, it went from being, you know, this thing outside which was just... It had so much substance. It had so much um, gravitas. It had this massive... It was so important... On so many levels. And this woman in the front row who'd come down from the sink, at the end of the show, she whispered something in Alex's ear and he just burst into tears. And she basically said, look, thank you. This has been like the best month of my life. It's been awesome. Like, she's stuck in this apartment on her own, and, you know, basically dying. And she said, I'm not going to be here next year because I won't be here anymore. I'll, I'll be dead. But this has been awesome. Thank you. You did this to me. And you just sort of go, and I, t- I kid you not. Alex started to cry and the rest of the audience, everyone kind of knew what was going on, everyone just broke down, it was amazing, watching an entire, I don't know how many, five, six hundred people all just well up and uh, it was incredible, it was so powerful, it was so strong, so that to me, the, the fact that that could happen, and a month prior to that when they first started there was 20 people there sort of kind of watching them and, and by the end of the month the word had got around about how good the show was and... They managed to create that at the end with such amazing heightened emotions at the end. It was yeah, it was amazing, mind-blowing.
2: So and, it's uh, something we all should aspire to.
1: Very much so, yeah. Very much so. There's so much more to what we do than what we do. I mean, you can take it so much further and it's just not particularly easy or obvious to do that, I suppose. But when you look at that and go, okay, that show was driven by a desire to... Perform at the absolute best that we could possibly perform and that's what they created because of that and that would never have happened for any other reason
2: and it will never happen again
1: exactly that was a one-off thing yeah you can't recreate that stuff that was totally a unique moment where and you know only 600 people saw it and but 600 people I bet you every single one of those people if you ask them to talk about it now would remember it as vividly as I'm remembering it it was such a powerful moment it was amazing yeah it was incredible <laughs> Blew me away. Totally blew me away. Dave Evans. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And uh, have good shows today. Ooh. Yeah. At the Dubai Marine Street Festival. I shall endeavour to have wonderful shows today.
2: Endeavour to make it something magical for the people who are watching.
1: Well, there you go. Make it something a bit different. Absolutely. Well, we could all do with reminding ourselves of that. Me included. Definitely me included. Yeah.
0: Cheers. Cheers. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com slash buskerstories. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us grow this resource and generate more content. So thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Simply go to your favorite app, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. If you're accessing this content via iTunes, we'd love it if you could take a moment and leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we can improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, reach out to story editor Magic Brian at magic@buskerhalloffame.com. At Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com/buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right hand side of the page. And just before wrapping things up, one final thought from the great Dave about how to make the most of whatever the pitch gives you.
1: Your job as a street performer is to adapt to any surroundings that you're in and make it work to the best of your abilities. The logical conclusion, the illogical conclusion maybe, is like when you're working in front of a building site and there's somebody there with a jackhammer work and it might be coffee heard. You should be able to turn that around and use that and make that into a funny thing in your show. Nobody would choose to work in front of a building site, but... I really do think that your job as a street farmer is to adapt to whatever situation you're in. And when you start working in the same pitch day in, day out, you just stop doing that and you just start doing the thing. And when it doesn't go as well as it did last Saturday, you start getting complacent. You start blaming the audience. I've watched that happen to so many people. But I really do think maybe the best thing for us all is to just keep moving around, keep doing stuff, keep trying new places, keep working in your pitches.
0: On behalf of myself, story editor Magic Bryant, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening.
2: Wow, this is awesome.